All right, if you'll stand with me this morning, there's a lot of confusion about hell. We're going to go to God's Word, to the book of Luke, chapter 16. We're going to read verses 19 through 31. If you're using a Bible from the pew in front of you, you can find this passage on page 602. Again, we're going to read Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, the words of Jesus Christ. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame." But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that through your word this morning, Lord, you would bring clarity and understanding, God, to... Uh, Lord, the place we refer to as hell, God, and we just pray that you would bring an urgency in our hearts to proclaim your gospel, Lord, so that people know the truth and the hope that lies within you and your Son, who raised from the dead. In his name we pray, amen. Solomon B. Shaw was a pastor in the late 1800s. And uh, he was an individual who recorded over 200 deathbed testimonies collected from eyewitness testimonies in a book titled The Dying Testimonies of the Saved and Unsaved. In fact, the book was first published in 1898, and I actually have a copy of um, one of the first editions or first printings of it uh, back in 1898. The pages are very, very... Uh, fragile, so I won't open it, but you can actually Google uh, this book, or Solomon B. Shaw, Google the title, uh, The Dying Testimonies of Saved and Unsaved, and you can find this book uh, in PDF form. Uh, All these testimonies are on the internet, and it's actually in paperback form as well. It's a fascinating read, and I encourage anyone to take time to read some of these deathbed testimonies. I want to share one by introduction here. It says, an aged and rebellious infidel, otherwise known as an unbeliever, died in the town of Freedom, Maine. While he lay sick, he refused any Christian the privilege of talking with him on religious subjects. Shortly before he died, he jumped suddenly up in his bed, screaming, the devils are coming, the devils are coming, keep them off me. And then he fell into a swoon. 
Just before he died, he seemed to summon all his strength, rose up in his bed and shouted, hell and damnation, hell and damnation, and then fell back, choked, strangled, and died. Is hell real? That's the question I want us to look at. It's the question I want us to answer this morning as we continue in this series, Final Questions, A Biblical View of Life After Death. Surveys consistently tell us that between 66 to 75 percent of the American population believes in some type of heaven and hell. And according to AARP magazine, that percentage jumps to 80 percent among people over the age of 50. But when those same people, here's what's interesting, are asked where they will go when they die, 78% say heaven, while only 4% say they will go to hell. On the one hand, if only 4% of the population thinks they are going to hell, perhaps this sermon isn't necessary. But on the other hand, Jesus himself reminds us that broad is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life in Matthew chapter 7. This means that there are an awful lot of people on the road to hell and simply don't know it. I pray you are not one of them here this morning. In today's culture of political correctness, campus safe zones, hell is not a very popular topic these days. Hell has been called the forgotten doctrine of the church and now it is becoming a forsaken doctrine by the church. Peter Kreef, a theologian from Boston College, puts it this way, of all the doctrines of Christianity, hell is the most difficult to defend. It's the most burdensome to bear and the first to be abandoned. And that's exactly what we are seeing today in our culture and across the world. More and more theologians, pastors, and Christian authors are emphasizing hell as a place characterized by an absence of God rather than by the presence of an eternal punishment and suffering. And you say, why? Well, a professor at Denver Seminary explains that many Christians today are ashamed of hell. They see it as a, quote, blemish to be covered up by the cosmetic of divine love. It seems as though hell's makeover assistants are, are kind of trying to help God out and explain hell in a more culturally acceptable way. As, as one author writes, many fashionable evangelicals profess to believe in hell, but it's a sort of air-conditioned hell. As one Christian author writes, the preaching or teaching of hell is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love and peace and forgiveness and joy that our world so desperately needs to hear. And what I find interesting about all of this in the day in which we live is that many contemporary pastors and so-called Christian authors, they want to save people from the idea of hell rather from hell itself. And in the process of helping God with his PR, they're reinventing the doctrine of hell with a false gospel. Despite 2,000 years of historic Christian interpretation, they are questioning whether Jesus spoke of hell as a real place of eternal suffering and torment at all. And so at the outset, I want to say to those of you who are members here at Glenwood, 
members of this church and even followers of Jesus Christ, that despite the the aspect in our culture that hell is under fire, and despite how difficult the notion of hell is, we must not abandon it. You say, why? Because hell is a doctrine taught in God's Word. It is a doctrine, as we're going to see, that was taught by Jesus Himself. And so whatever you may think about hell here this morning, there are really only two possibilities. Either it's real or it's not. I'm reminded of the story about the chaplain who reported to a new duty station. And upon arrival, some of the men came to see him and asked him this question, Do you believe in hell? And when he replied that he did not, the men asked him to resign. And he asked why. And their response to him was this, If there is no hell, then we don't need you. And if there is a hell, we don't want to be led you to lead us astray. I want you to hear my heart here this morning on a difficult topic. I don't want to lead anyone astray here this morning when it comes to the topic and the doctrine of hell. And so my goal is to show you from God's Word what God has to say about this issue of hell. And so with this in mind, there are three questions that I want to take us through. And that is, is hell real, is hell eternal, and is hell necessary? And so let's dive into it here with the first question. Is hell real? Now, there are only two ways to answer a question like this. Either we look to human opinion or we consider what God has said in the Bible. And the most obvious biblical fact is that Jesus Christ believed in hell. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. I, I encourage everyone here to, to read the four Gospels, that is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll discover that Jesus had way more to say about hell than he ever did about heaven. In fact, most of what we know about hell comes from Jesus himself. And so what did Jesus have to say about hell? Well, perhaps Jesus' most vivid description of hell is found right here in the story he told about the rich man and Lazarus here in Luke 16. Now, it's interesting. Some people call this a parable of Jesus, but most scholars actually believe that since Jesus used a real name in the name Lazarus, that Jesus is probably describing an actual occurrence, that this was maybe a real event. Either way, Jesus emphasizes three realities here for us about hell. And the first reality is this. Hell is a place of separation. It's a place of separation. Death marks the final separation between believers and unbelievers, as well as separation from God and His saving grace in Jesus Christ. Notice again what Jesus says in verses 22 and 23. It says, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which is just a Jewish expression for paradise or heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now the first thing we, we learn here from this story is that there is life after death. In fact, it's interesting, both Lazarus and the rich man, they actually survived their own funerals, but in two different destinations. One is in heaven, one is in Hades. 
And after the rich man died, he began to experience the reality of Hades when Jesus said, and being in torment in Hades. Now, Hades uh, is not the same thing as hell. Hades is the place where people go after they die, but before they face God at the final judgment. Hades is never used for believers. It's only used in reference for the souls of unbelievers. And here, Jesus tells us that when unbelievers go to Hades, they are already afflicted with the flames of divine judgment that will eternally torment them later on when Hades is cast into the lake of fire, what we would know as hell. So that's the first reality. Hell is a place of separation. It's a place of final separation from God Almighty, from God in His love, God in His grace, God in His mercy that is demonstrated to us with the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But we also see a second reality. Hell is a place of torment. It's a place of torment. Notice how Jesus describes the rich man's condition in verse 24. It says, then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now make no mistake about it, this rich man is in a place of conscious torment and personal suffering. Even in hell, the rich man was conscious of his surroundings. He could feel the agony and torments. He could cry out for mercy. He experienced the unquenchable thirst. He was in extreme anguish and torment. And so this is not the only place where the Bible uses such vivid language to describe how terrible hell is. We find later on in Matthew 25, 30, Jesus describes hell as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 48, Jesus also described hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And later in the book of Revelation, the final judgment is described as a lake of fire. And here in this story, in Luke 16, Jesus uses the word torment three different times to describe how terrible hell is. But here's the point. Every description of hell in God's word is one of agony, suffering, and torment. Charles Spurgeon gave this vivid description of hell. When he said, there is a real fire in hell as truly as you have a real body. A fire exactly like that which we have on this earth, except this. It will not consume you, though it will torture you. You have seen asbestos lying amid red hot coals, but not consumed. So your body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed. With your nerves laid raw by searing flame, yet never desensitized for all its raging furry. And the bitter smoke of the sulfurous fume searing your lungs and choking your breath. You will cry out for the mercy of death, but it shall never, never, no, never come. And that is the second reality of hell. It is a place of torment. The third reality we find here is it is a place of finality. Eternal destinies are fixed at the moment of death and they cannot be changed. Listen to me. Once in hell, always in hell. We see this when Abraham responds to the rich man's plea for mercy in verse 26. 
He tells him, and besides all this, between us and you, there is this great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. In other words, what Abraham is telling this rich man is that no one in heaven can cross over to hell, and no one in hell can cross over to heaven. One author put it this way, once we have passed through the door of death, we can't pick up our suitcase and move out because we don't like the accommodations. This man had an overwhelming realization that his destiny was settled with no way of changing it, with no way of escaping it, which brings us to this aspect that the rich man is also in a place not only of finality, but it is a place of no second chances. The great gulf that is spoken of here could have been crossed while he was alive, but now it is uncrossable. Why? Because the Bible makes it clear that our time on this earth, this life we have now, is the time to respond to Jesus Christ. Our eternal destiny is determined now, not later, when it's too late. Is hell real? Well, the story of the rich man shows us that hell is real, hell is terrible, and hell is final. The second question we want to answer is, is hell eternal, though? Is it a place of eternal punishment and suffering? Now, in recent years, that idea has come under attack. Some people argue that the doctrine of an eternal hell is, is immoral somehow, that it makes God vindictive. And that would be true if we didn't understand the mercy of God and the grace of God's salvation that He offers to all of us here now in His Son, Jesus Christ. One opponent of hell said this, and I quote, If God punishes people with eternal retribution, then God is a monster. And if God is not a monster, then you are a monster for believing it. And another author's response to that was, actually Jesus taught the doctrine of hell because we are monsters. Now there are two false views of hell that are being regurgitated by many of today's pastors and so-called Christian authors. I want us to look at those false views briefly here. One is universalism. Perhaps you've heard of that term, perhaps you have not. It's simply this, it's a view that everyone will eventually be saved from hell or just go straight to heaven when they die. There are many people who hold today to universal salvation they believe that all people eventually will end up in heaven. Perhaps it's the thought of men and women living a life of eternal torment in hell that causes one to reject the teaching of Scripture on this very issue. For some, it is an overemphasis on the love and compassion of God, while at the same time, a neglect of the righteousness and justice of God that leads them to believe that God will have mercy on every living being. One variation of this particular false view is called universal reconciliation. And that simply is the position that all of mankind will eventually be saved through Christ whether or not faith is professed in Him in this life. In other words, at some point after death or before death, all of mankind will be reconciled to God through Christ. People who embrace this false view claim that a, a, quote, loving God would not submit any person, regardless of their sins, to everlasting torment, but would instead reform them so that they end up in heaven. 
That's a false view of hell. It's, it's called universalism, that everyone eventually will end up in heaven, and that is not what God's Word teaches. There's another false view. It's called annihilationism. And this view simply states that those in hell will be destroyed at some point and then simply cease to exist. Perhaps God will punish the person for a time, proportionate to his or her sin, but at some point in hell, God will say, that's enough, and then that person will be destroyed. This view of hell declares God will punish you for a time just to make a point and then obliterate you so you won't remember his point. It's ouch and poof, and you will no longer exist. Obviously, this view takes the forever out of hell. This view also takes some of the steam out of hell, too. It tries to offer some comfort to both unbelievers who secretly wonder in their heart, what if I'm wrong about hell? What if I'm wrong about God? It also tries to offer comfort to believers who grieve over the fate of their unbelieving loved ones. But Jesus didn't speak of hell in a way, get this, that made it less frightening. He always spoke of it in a way that makes it more frightening. In other words, he spoke of it in a way that will stop us in our tracks, that will cause us to pause for a moment in this life and give thought to our eternal destiny. Is hell eternal? Here's the biblical view of hell. God's Word describes hell as eternal or forever. It's interesting, Jesus drew a link not only between the reality of heaven and hell. In other words, if there's a heaven, there's a hell, and they're both real. And he draws a parallel reality between those two. But he now also draws this link between the duration of heaven and the duration of hell. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and these, speaking of believers or the righteous, and these will go away, I'm sorry, of speaking of unbelievers, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's interesting. So we have eternal punishment and eternal life in the same verse here from the words of Christ himself. In the Greek, the same word for eternal is used to describe both eternal life and eternal punishment. And therefore, if eternal life is unending, it stands to reason that eternal punishment is unending. And so no wonder Jesus warns us in Matthew 18, 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, that it causes you to stumble in receiving Christ, in putting your faith in Him, to stumble in your faith in Christ, cut it off and throw it away. That's how serious He is about it. Why? He says, it is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Later on, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, immediately some of us might think that sounds like an oxymoron. 
a contradiction in terms, eternal or everlasting destruction. How can something be eternal or everlasting if it is destroyed? And the problem lies in the translation of the Greek terms here into our English Bibles. In English, the word destruction generally means something which once existed no longer exists. Poof, it's gone. However, in the Greek, the word destruction means loss of well-being, ruined, wasted, or spoiled, as in eternal separation, as Paul says, from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented. Listen to what he says. This is the, the disciple John speaking. He, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But then you drop down to verses 14 and 15, and you notice who else is thrown into the lake of fire, who else is tormented day and night. And John tells us, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, in light of God's Word, and we could go on and search the Scriptures for other places here, it becomes obvious that hell is eternal. And so the question may be, well, just how long is eternity? Just how long is hell then? How long is forever? The Puritan pastor William Secker said it this way, If once you fall into hell, after millions of years are elapsed, you will be as far from coming out as you were going in. Think about this. There's no such thing as half an eternity. The most sobering thought that we could leave here this morning with, the most sobering thought that could ever cross our minds this morning is to realize that the rich man in our story is not one step closer to his time in hell coming to an end. This brings us to the last question that we want to answer. And it's probably the most difficult question to answer and probably the most difficult answer to understand and comprehend. And that is, is hell necessary? Is hell necessary? Have you ever thought to yourself, have you ever wondered why would God create or even allow such a place as hell to exist. And I want to give you two reasons why hell is necessary. Obviously, for time's sake, we cannot delve into this subject and answer this question exhaustively. But I would encourage you to take time this afternoon or later this week to read the insert in your bulletin. It goes further in explanation, trying to help us understand why Hell is necessary. But for our message here this morning, let me offer you two reasons why hell is necessary. The first one is this. Hell is necessary because of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Hell is necessary because of God's holiness and our sinfulness. People's objection to hell is almost always rooted in two assumptions which are fatally flawed. And the first assumption is this. We assume that God is just as tolerant of sin as we are. 
And the second fatal assumption we make is that we assume we really aren't that bad. We know we're sinners, but I'm not quite that bad of a sinner. And so we have a a false assumption, false view about the holiness of God, and we have a false assumption or false view about the sinfulness of humanity. But let's make it personal, our own sinfulness. Us, me. Jonathan Edwards said, the reason we find hell so offensive is because of our insensitivity to sin. Francis Chan writes, God is compassionate and just. He's loving and holy, but also wrathful and forgiving. We can't sideline his more difficult attributes to make room for the palatable ones. Eliminate hell, and we eliminate something vital to God's character. Namely, that our God is a consuming fire, according to Hebrews 12.29. That He is completely holy, infinitely pure and righteous, according to Hebrews 1.9. He is a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished, according to Ezekiel, I mean Exodus 34.7. And so when we begin to eliminate the doctrine of hell as taught in the Word of God, listen, it begins to change who God is. Removing hell doesn't make God more loving, folks. It makes God more small. It makes Him more like us. Thankfully, God is not like us. God is matchless in His holiness, and therefore He can't tolerate our sinfulness. God hates sin because it's the exact opposite of His nature. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 5-4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. We've been conditioned, though, by our culture, especially in the last 10 to 20 years, to think this, to think that love and hate are mutually exclusive and always incompatible. And that is simply not true. It's a false view of both love and hate and what they are. As one pastor writes, it is because God is love that necessitates his hatred of evil. Because sin and evil are an assault on his character and on his image bearers. And so unlike us, unlike humanity, God never compromises with sin. And hell expresses his final, quote, no to sin. A God who does not oppose sin is not holy. God hates our sin because it's destructive to us. It's destructive to others. Look around our world and you see the evidence of it every day. You see the evidence of it in your own families at times. God hates it because it offends His holiness. And He hates it because it actually, our sinfulness, it leads people to ignore the very truth about God as revealed in His Word. What is the source of sin? What is the source of our sin? We are. This is why it's really not accurate to separate the sins From the sinner, as we like to commonly say sometimes. Listen, only the work of Jesus Christ on the cross can separate us from the due penalty of our own sin. 
Apart from that, there is no separation between God's hatred of sin and His hatred of sinners. The problem is, we don't really believe we deserve God's wrath. Somehow in our minds, we think that's not fair. But may I lovingly remind us, we are coming from a finite view in our own thinking. We are limited in our thinking, and we are trying to comprehend an infinite, holy God. This is why we often hear people say, my God would never send anyone to hell. Not my God. And to that person, I simply want to reply, true, since your God is just a magnified image of yourself. Because that is our own view of God in so many ways for all of us. We make God into our own image. Instead of letting the Word of God reveal to us who God is. Remember, God is not like us. He is holy and we are not. And thankfully, God can both love the sinner by seeking His good while hating the wicked state of the sinner's heart. Remember, people often think that hell is some great blemish on God's love. But hell magnifies God's love. You say, how's that? In showing us just how far He went to save us from hell. There are two truths that I know about myself. First, I deserve to go to hell because of my sin. That is the truth that I know about Bruce Adrian. I deserve God's punishment because I am guilty of sin. But there's a second truth I know about me, and it's much greater than the first truth, that I am going to heaven when I die because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. He paid the price for my sins. He took my punishment, and that's why I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, and that is the only reason why I get to go to heaven when I die. Is hell necessary? Absolutely. Why? Because of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Which ultimately brings us to the second reason. Hell is necessary because ultimately it glorifies God. It glorifies God. And I know it's shocking to hear that. Perhaps it's even shocking to say it. Hell glorifies God? How can eternal punishment glorify God? And the answer is because belief in hell affirms the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity, and that moves us to glorify God. Belief in hell also affirms God's other attributes like truth, righteousness, justice, and grace. God will bring justice to those who do not honor Him and who will not confess that they have committed cosmic treason against Him. There is justice. And we all, listen, there isn't a person alive who doesn't want justice. We are created intuitively, where we want that, we seek that, we want justice for ourselves and justice in the world. And the reason we want it so much is because we look out and we don't see it at times. But folks, listen to me. There is a day coming where there is justice for those who have been harmed 
by the unrepentant. And thanks be to God, there is grace for all us moral failures who turn to God in fear and repentance. And so grace is not the elimination of hell. And any idea that comforts people in their unrepentant state can in no way be loving and truthful or gracious. As one writer puts it, at the end of the day, to lose the doctrine of hell as it is taught in the Bible will result in the shrinkage of God's attributes and in the end, a smaller God. We will suffer the loss of the fear of God, the loss of a holy God, the loss of a loving God, and the loss of God's wisdom on the cross. Professor and Pastor James Hamilton Jr. writes, Hell glorifies God by vindicating His holiness and faithfulness to His Word, demonstrating His infinite worth, and magnifying His mercy and love toward the redeemed. Is it fair for God to punish some people eternally? That is a common question. And it's a question that we ask in our limited human understanding. Is it fair for God to punish some people eternally? I would say that's the wrong question. Let me put forth to you a better question. Is it fair for God to reward some rebels with eternal life? That's the question we ought to ponder. Is it fair for God to reward some rebels with eternal life? Because that's exactly what God does in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He rewards those who deserve the exact opposite of what He gives them. Pastor Greg Gilbert writes, In fact, the horrific nature of what we have been saved from only intensifies the glory of what we have been saved to. Not only so, but as we see ever more clearly the horror of hell, we look with ever more love, ever more gratitude, and ever greater worship to the One who endured that hell for us and saved us. Thor Ramsey writes, take away the vital connection of Jesus saving His people from their sins, diverting the wrath of God and pronouncing sinners justified, and you have a nonsensical gospel. Eternal punishment highlights the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it makes it more meaningful, and that's why hell glorifies God. Listen, make no mistake about it here. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. And hell is the choice we make in this life. Hell is the final destiny of those who reject God's love in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with that name, he writes in his book, The Problem of Pain and the Great Divorce, and I quote his words here, he says, in the long run, the answer to all those who, who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But He has done that already. On Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what He does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. 
in those to whom God says, Thy will be done. Here's the urgency of eternity. The urgency of eternity is this. Our eternal destiny hinges on our response to Jesus Christ. Will you turn from Jesus or will you turn, or I'm sorry, trust in Jesus? Do you want to go to hell? I know some people flippantly say that. Do you want to end up in hell? Then just continue to reject Jesus Christ. Ignore Him. Turn from Him. Walk away from His saving grace and you will seal your fate in hell forever. And by the way, that is our default position from the moment of birth. The writer of Hebrews asks in Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Hebrews 10.29 asks, how do you ever expect to survive if you have trampled underfoot the Son of God in the blood of Jesus Christ? Bill Hybels put it this way in his sermon, A Look at Hell. If you reject Jesus and end up on hell, don't blame God. He pleaded with you. He didn't. He did what it took. The Spirit was moving. The whole Christian community was encouraging you to do the right thing. You made your choice in this life, and your choice will be borne out in the next life. You wanted to live apart from God in this life. You'll live apart from God in eternity then. It's just that you have no idea how awful it will be when you get there, and there will be no second chance. It's forever. Listen, hell does not have to be anyone's Dreadful reality here this morning. Heaven can be your glorious reality when we trust in Jesus Christ. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible speaks it so clearly. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not what? Perish but have everlasting life. Christ alone is able to remove your sin. Christ alone is able to restore you to God for all eternity. The question remains, will you turn from Jesus and continue to do so, or will you trust in Jesus? There is no middle ground. Eternal life and death hang in the balance with this question. I want to close with one last testimony from Solomon B. Shaw's book, The Dying Testimonies of the Saved and Unsaved. It says, There was a young man in Georgia who was constantly warned by his parents and others to turn from his wickedness and profanity and gambling. But he would not taste their advice and became a miserable wreck of humanity. He was taken ill, and during his sickness, he would exclaim, Oh, drive these devils away from their chains. They will drag my soul down to hell before I die. Oh, brother and sister, take warning. Don't come to this hell. This hell is enough. The devils are dragging me down. 
And as he cried mightily, don't come to this hell of woe, this hell, this hell, his soul departed to everlasting ruin and perdition. My prayer this morning is that we would take warning. We would take warning from the story that Jesus tells us of the rich man and Lazarus. We would take warning from the awful experience of this young man's death, and we would repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation before it's too late. Who here knows when they will die? Who of us knows when we will take our last breath? Who here knows that they're guaranteed life even as they drive home from church here this afternoon? God loves you. Oh, how He loves you. And He doesn't want you to go to hell, but because of our sinfulness, we are all born with a reservation for hell. But when we repent of our sins, when we trust in Jesus Christ, man, in His grace and in His love, He forgives us and He cancels our reservation in hell and He makes a new reservation for us in heaven. I ask you again, will you turn from Jesus or will you trust in Him? With your heads bowed, let's pray. If you were to die even tonight, this afternoon, where would you spend eternity? Would it be heaven or would it be hell? And if you're here this morning, you're not quite sure where you will spend eternity. You're not quite sure if it will be heaven. You can know for sure today. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In verse 13, it says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, this is God's gift of eternal life. But we must respond. We must repent of our sin and accept God's salvation through His Son, Jesus. Let me encourage you. The praise team's going to pray, and while they, I mean sing, and while they do, cry out. Repent of your sin and place your faith. Pray to the Lord to save you of your sins and to grant you eternal life while the praise team sings.